Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and we pray that God will be with us tonight as we talk about a lot of graphics, a lot of substance to things tonight. Not going to have much fluff, except people are wondering where in the state of Utah they can, too, get their hair cut like mine. Uh, All you... (laughs) All you need to do is go to Billy Bob's Auto Lube and Trim, and they will take care of your hair in a similar fashion. Got this email from Lois after last week's show. I made a comment that suggested Joseph Smith borrowed from Emanuel Swedenborg's ideas on pre-existence. Lois wrote, Sean, last night you mentioned Swedenborg in connection to Joseph Smith's idea of pre-mortal existence. My dad was a Christian church minister for many years. He passed on 24 years ago, and he was introduced to Swedenborg's writings when he was in his 40s, and they answered a lot of questions for him. It took me a while, but eventually I began reading his books too. I've been reading them for 30 or 40 years now. I've never read anything that connects the idea of premortal existence to Joseph Smith. She continues, there's a lot of talk last night about the genius, speaking of last week's program, of Joseph Smith, but it doesn't begin to compare with the genius of Emanuel Swedenborg, and she goes on to articulate many of his vast accomplishments. Thank you, Lois, for taking the time to write. Admittedly, over the years of investigating Smith, many people have uh, intimated that he borrowed the idea of a pre-mortal existence from Emanuel Swedenborg, and but I'm not, uh, I've only read people saying it, I've never read Swedenborg saying it, and so um, I trust in your education on the matter. But that being said, people, uh, even active LDS people, continue to suggest that Swedenborg did touch on the topic, but most importantly, that he touched on the topic as a means to clarify what a pre-existence is in the Bible and what it's not. Uh, So maybe it's in this context that Joseph Smith was inspired by Swedenborg. Nevertheless, Lois got me interested in the subject, and so I'm gonna spend a a few minutes right now to talk about Emmanuel Swedenborg and his influence, his obvious influence on Joseph Smith. Uh, The man was born in Sweden in 1688, 116 years before Joseph Smith, When he was 57 years old, he was a very accomplished man, uh, very involved politically in Sweden and involved in a number of other things. But he said when he was 57, he was visited by Jesus Christ. We were just talking about this a minute ago, who commanded him to write the inner meaning of the Bible, especially as it relates to life after death. And this revelation sort of launched him into this visionary period where he says he would actually transport up into beyond uh, the veil and with angels, and he would do this constantly for the rest of his life. And apparently Swedenborg was able to actually visit the other side, so to speak, and gain insights on what the Bible actually means when it says certain things. And by the way, Swedenborg loved the Bible. Uh, While a very accomplished man in the secular world, he was also an ardent Bible reader. And in the midst of these visionary experiences, he wrote thousands and thousands of pages that inspired insights. uh, He said were inspired insights that came from the Lord. We could spend months uh, covering his writings. Uh, Study it out if you're interested. But for our purposes related to Mormonism, let me sort of summarize some ideas Swedenborg presented that I think influenced Joseph Smith, and I apologize to Lois for not giving these areas the time and attention they deserve. First, Swedenborg divided the heavens into three, celestial, spiritual, and natural, okay? And and if you look at um, 1 Corinthians 15, the Bible divides it into two, but Smith turned it into three as well, celestial, terrestrial, and the all-infamous made-up telestial, uh, he, Smith noticed, uh, noted, like the LDS do today, that the lower heavens cannot communicate with the higher heavens. Uh, within the highest celestial realm, Swedenborg taught that there were three levels. Joseph Smith did the same. In his visions, Swedenborg saw that there were robes that were worn by uh, marriage 
people being married in heaven. And Swedenborg witnessed one where a man wore robes like those of Aaron, that we would think Aaron would, and the wife was arrayed as a queen. And anybody who watched the temple film that we have shown here will see that there's some of that going on within the temple. And so uh, they believe he could have borrowed from Swedenborg in that area. Swedenborg and then Smith after him taught that a person has to be married to inherit the highest heaven. Mormons do the same. Swedenborg taught that the middle heaven, uh, there was three, but of the middle, he labeled it the world of spirits. And it's very similar to the LDS version of the spirit world in that it's a place of preparation for people who are going to heaven and or perdition, depending on what happens there. Mormonism and Swedenborgians both teach that the world of spirits or spirit world is a portal through which all people pass through to prepare for their eternal destiny. Swedensborg views and Smiths are very similar when it comes to this place of preparation. with the LDS saying, you can read it for yourself. All right, Swedenborg likened his three uh, heavens to the sun, moon, and stars. Smith did the same thing, but there were some great dissimilarities between the two uh, philosophies, but that, those are some big similarities. Swedenborg also taught that the uh, church Christ established died spiritually and no longer serves as a link between heaven and earth. And of course, Joseph Smith agreed with universal apostasy. The difference was Swedenborg said that truth was lost from the earth, and Joseph Smith said a priesthood authority was lost from the earth. Both men taught that the Lord would establish a new church on the earth again. By the way, that's the name of Swedenborg's uh, church that he founded, the new church. Swedenborg taught that when little children die, they go directly to heaven. So did Smith um, 160 years or so later. What's interesting is I cannot believe that Bible reading Christians ever would suggest that, Christ, that children who die go to hell. I mean, I, be, I can't even fathom that was ever taught by anybody with a sound mind who understands God to be a God of mercy. Uh, it's unbelievable, and, and yet um, I guess it happened quite often. Uh, Swedenborg talked that God created man to have free will, uh, Arminius in, in that regard. Smith agreed. Swedenborg spoke of something termed an equilibrium between good and evil uh, as being absolutely necessary to the ways and will of God. Smith later proposed in his Book of Mormon that there is an opposition in all things, Uh, quote unquote, and that's very similar to Swedenborg's idea of this balanced equilibrium between good and evil. Swedenborg rejected salvation by faith alone. In fact, he said it was one of the great errors in Christianity. Mormonism agrees, even if they pretend to do otherwise today. Swedenborg taught that to qualify for perdition, a person has to literally know the truth and then turn from it Uh, hardcore knowing the truth, and Smith taught something very similar. Uh, Swedenborg taught that celestial beings, those who have earned celestial life, are people who have consecrated all things to the common good. Now, if you remember the temple uh, series that we showed, one of the last covenants that you make in the temple as a Mormon is is the law of consecration, where you too consecrate all your goods, and that is in preparation for celestial life. So we have a tie there. And he taught that all material things on earth have a spiritual form first, And then uh, uh, Smith taught the same thing. The Bible teaches the opposite. He says all things are first physical and then spiritual. And then in Arcana Colestia, one of his many books, Swedenborg wrote the coup de grace, God is very man. That's a way of saying God is totally man. And in his King Follett Discourse, Smith in many similar ways echoed these sentiments. The question is, did Smith channel Swedenborg on these issues? Are these insights sort of like eternal forms that Plato talked about that hover around the world and they all tapped into them and brought back the same things? Is it demonic? Uh, Or did Smith, like he did in constructing his Book of Mormon, borrow from the concepts of Swedenborg, write 
uh, write them down a hundred years later and create his own sort of theories about Swedenborg's original concepts? I would say yeah to the latter. The question is, is there proof? So let me tell you before we go to prayer. First of all, by the time Smith was born, and remember he was born in a household where they talked about religion constantly, uh, it's quite possible he could have had access to Swedenborg's unique insights. Followers of Swedenborg in America were called uh, the New Church, and during Joseph Smith's lifetime, uh, members of the New Church in New York initiated a newspaper campaign to teach people about Swedenborg. In fact, prior to the Smith family moving to their location in New York, where Joseph Smith would do the whole gold plates and everything else, year, a few years before moving there, the front page of the newspaper held an entire uh, expose article on Swedenborg and his teachings. That could be my car that's being broken into right now, if you can hear that. Uh, so uh, we know that it doesn't, the Smiths weren't there when the newspaper uh, did that article, but we know that the seeds could have been planted in that area by other religious-minded people. And so when they arrived, Swedenborg could have been talked about by everybody and drawn the Smiths to that attention. Then in 1826, while Smith was writing the Book of Mormon, a mail-order newspaper advertisement for, uh, for his book, Swedenborg's book, Heaven and Hell, uh, appeared in the uh, Canadagua, uh, newspaper. That was the newspaper the Smiths wrote. So there was an ad for Heaven and Hell, Swedenborg's book, in the newspaper as Smith was uh, translating, quote-unquote, the Book of Mormon, and he didn't produce the Book of Mormon for another three years. So that could have uh, been a, a thing. Also, there were 7,000 of his books distributed in the East Coast during Joseph Smith's uh, early years uh, that were produced in the United States. D. Michael Quinn, a well-known Mormon historian, indicates that Joseph Smith did read books that contained information about Swedenborg and his doctrines, including a 20-page summary, which seems to have been taken from Swedenborg's most popular book, Heaven and Hell. Additionally, there were three congregations of Swedenborg's The New Church within 75 miles of Smith's home. There was also Sarah Cleveland. She was a plural wife of Joseph Smith, who, according to LDS historian Todd Compton, was sealed to Smith in the year of 1842. At the time of her plural marriage to Joseph Smith, Sarah Cleveland was married to John Cleveland, a Swedenborgian who apparently knew nothing about the secret plural marriage between his wife to the Mormon founder. Sarah joined the LDS Church in 1835, and in 1836, she and her husband moved to Quincy, Illinois. When Nauvoo became the center of Mormonism in 1839, um, the Clevelands were kind of surrounded by LDS, and the Smiths and the Clevelands became friends when Emma and her children stayed in the Clevelands' home uh, while Joseph was in jail. Afterward, apparently, uh, Joseph rewarded the Clevelands with a plot of land in Nauvoo for taking care of Emma and their children while he was in jail. He appears that Joseph rewarded Sister Cleveland with some extra things as well. But uh, so there's another connection. Finally, Joseph Smith uh, did reveal at least a knowledge of Swedenborg when he said in 1839, Emmanuel Swedenborg had a view of the world to come, but for daily food, he perished, quote unquote. And so uh, people have written books, Beyond Death's Door, Heaven and Hell, uh, Death uh, in the Swedenborgian and Mormon Eschatology was written by Marianne Myers. All of them suggest that Smith borrowed from Swedenborg. BYU Studies has includes some articles which briefly mention Swedenborg. D. Michael Quinn dedicated a few pages on Swedenborg in his book, Early, Mormon, early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. Last week we mentioned that of all things, Joseph Smith was a tremendous synthesizer of religious information. I maintain, uh, I remain convicted that that was his greatest asset, his ability to take, borrow, steal, and counterfeit uh, things that created his newfangled gospel. So, which continues to beguile and convince people to believe in his insights 
over the word of God. So that's the update on Swedenborg for our Swedenborg files. We probably won't uh, talk it again except through phone calls. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we seek you as we uh, open up uh, this um, continuation of comparing uh, Calvinism with uh, Joseph Smith's Mormonism. We also pray for our callers and our audience, our viewers, whether now, the NRB network, online, wherever they may be, that you will speak to us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, while Joseph Smith was one of the great religious synthesizers, he was really adept at knowing what not to include into his system of theology, and I congratulate him on that. Uh, so back to the TULIP, remember? T-U-L-I-P. It's an acronym for uh, Calvinism. In last few weeks, we've talked about the T, total depravity, and we've talked about the U, unconditional election. That's the T and the U of the TULIP. Total depravity says nobody will ever choose God on their own. And unconditional election says that as a result, God then chooses who he will save by his own goodwill and pleasure. And he also chooses who is going to burn in hell for eternity by his own goodwill and pleasure. This brings us to the L in the tulip, limited atonement. Limited atonement. It's really important to know that five-point Calvinism does not stand if any of the T-U-L-I-P are removed. You can believe the T, the U, the I, and the P. If you remove the L, it, the chain falls apart. See, if five-point Calvinism, in other words, doesn't exist unless it's five points. There's no such thing at all as four-point, three-point, two-point, point or one point Calvinism. So John Calvin, he had a steely legal mind. And in the face of Martin Luther's Reformation, what he did was he looked around and he said, we have all these people coming out of Catholicism into this new grace-filled religion, and nobody really knows what they believe. So I'm going to sit down and I am going to methodically detail a system and set the parameters for the masses to be forced to follow. Essentially, that's what he did. And if you didn't follow him, by God, you were in trouble. Big trouble. If you did not kowtow to Luther, I mean to Calvin uh, in Geneva, Switzerland, you were gonna lose your life. Uh, you were gonna be put in prison. You were gonna have your goods stripped from you. Your reputation was gonna be soiled because he came up with a definitive uh, doctrinal premise of what Christianity means under grace, so to speak. So as he proceeded, he produced this enormous volume of seamless theology. It's true, just like Mormonism is for Smith. And he compiled it into a book called Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, the LDS talk about Smith's genius, uh, and he was a great synthesizer, but compared to Calvin, compared to even Swedenborg, I don't think he was much more than a carny at the fair guessing people's weights and horoscopes. I mean, we are talking about, that's about the same comparison when you compare the mind of Calvin. I mean, that guy was uh, very, very smart. Calvin's reformed perspective says Jesus only atoned for sins of some. There's where we get limited atonement. Um, and it's just an extension of his thought on total depravity and unconditional election. Limited atonement falls right in place with his thinking. And it's, you see, if all people are depraved and God chooses to elect only some of them to salvation, uh, then there's gonna be a limited atonement to follow. To, see, to Calvin, since no one deserves to be saved and since only God elects only a small or certain group to be saved, it only makes sense then, the next line, that Jesus would not suffer for everybody. Why would he suffer for everybody if God knows who his elect are from the beginning and, and chooses them? So therefore, Jesus on the cross only suffered for the few that were unconditionally elected out of total depravity. Do you see the chain? This is how it works. So five-point Calvinists carrying their insane doctrines out to further extremes now go on and say that Jesus only suffered for the sins of the elect while the rest of us, the rest of those who are not elect, will go to an eternal burning hell of flames um, because God so chooses and uh, Jesus didn't suffer for their sins. 
They're, they're paying for their own sins. Now, some Calvinists today claim that John Calvin did not really teach limited atonement. Uh, but take note, this is what Calvin said. It's not direct. Here's some quotes. They're heavy, but I'll read them. The whole world does not belong to its creator except that grace rescues from God's curse and wrath and eternal death a limited number who would otherwise perish. But the world itself is left to its own destruction to which it has been destined. Meanwhile, although Christ interposes himself as mediator, he claims for himself in common with the Father the right to choose meaning the right to choose who he's going to save. I am not speaking, he says, quoting John 13, 18, of all I know who I have chosen. He's quoting Christ there in the Bible. Calvin continues, says, this we must believe. When he declares that he knows who he has chosen, he denotes in the human genus a particular species, distinguished not by the equality of its virtues, but by heavenly decree. And then he says, listen closely, the doctrine of salvation, which is said to be reserved solely and individually for the sons of the church, is falsely debased when presented as effectually profitable to all. What that says translated is there's a limited atonement. <laughs> And, and in the end, most Calvinists who embrace limited atonement would argue that God would not have Jesus shed his precious blood or suffer on the cross for men and women who he knew would never, ever receive him. Therefore, an atonement of Christ was limited in scope. Interestingly enough, the LDS and biblical Christians uh, come close to agreement with each other uh, in their united disagreement against Calvin on this point. Uh, factions occur between uh, biblical Christians and Mormons, though, on what atonement means, how it is applied, and how it's efficacious to men and women. But still, we generally agree, Christ, biblical Christian, non-Calvinist biblical Christians and Mormons, uh, Calvin was wrong on limited atonement. Biblically speaking, there's just too much evidence to support the fact that Jesus suffered, bled, died for the sins of the whole world, something the LDS and biblical Christians do agree upon. Calvin says no. Consider the evidence. Ask yourself, does this sound like Jesus only died for a few, uh, for the you know, selected elected, so to speak? Ready? I'll read through them quickly. John 1.29. The next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. 1 John 2, 2, and he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Romans 5, 18, therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life, all men. Hebrews 2, 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for only those who God foreordained and elected, right? No, for every man. 2 Corinthians 5, 15, and, he, and that he died for all, and they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. 1 Corinthians 15, for since by man came death, by man came also resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, do we all die? Yes, we do. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. All. Sorry, Calvin. 1 Timothy 2, 3, 4, it's a great one. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 4.10, For therefore we labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, listen, who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. So the Book of Mormon pretty much echoes much of what the Bible says about Jesus' atonement because it was a, a biblical, biblically-based book when Joseph, he was young and he was starting his new thing. And so it pretty much uh, 
follows along the, the biblical line, but as Smith grew in his imaginations, the LDS view of atonement grew farther and farther away from traditional Christianity. So let me sort of summarize the spectrum of stances that are generally uh, taken relative to the atonement of Jesus Christ, all right? I'm gonna start with Calvin. It'll be really quick. In fact, we'll give you a graphic. Calvin essentially said, here's his view. Jesus only paid for the sin of those God has elected to salvation. That's the Calvinist view. You believe that, have a party, have at it, smoke it, do what you want with it, but that's what Calvin taught. Then we have the Arminists who say, Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world, but his gift must be accepted in faith and in this life for it to be effectual. And then if it has been accepted, it has to be maintained meaning you have to make sure you maintain that salvation that was the free gift to you. Because Joseph Smith was influenced by Universalist father and grandfather, Mormonism's view of the atonement of Christ smacks of a form of universalism. You see, the LDS takes some liberties with the salvific work of Christ, and while admitting that Jesus did indeed suffer for sin and death for the whole world, his work will grant a resurrected body to every person who has ever lived, and they will also receive a kingdom. So let's show you that graphic. The LDS say, when it comes to uh, atonement, Jesus paid for sin and death for the whole world. And all people are then gifted with a resurrected body, even the deem, even the very bad worst, and a kingdom of some sort as a result. But only those who repent and do what the LDS Church demands can reach the Father. So we see, we see a marked difference. We see Calvin, then we see Arminius views come in, and now we see Smith, who comes with a, with a more revolutionary thing. He ties it to Mormonism. You gotta have this to get to the Father, but because Jesus, he was a universalist at heart, Jesus will give you a body, and you'll also get a kingdom, and even if it's the lowest kingdom, you'll kill yourself to get there. It's so cool, and that's how it's taught. However, for those who are to claim exaltation as a Mormon, which means living with God the Father after this life and not in just some kingdom, the atonement, listen, provides an opportunity. This is where you get the free gift of a body and a kingdom, but the atonement provides an opportunity to repent of sin for those who believe, and when it's done right, it allows you to enter into exaltation. In other words, Mormons say, Jesus paid for sin and death for the whole world, although it was in the garden, and all people are gifted with a resurrected body and a kingdom of some sort who have come to this earth, but only those who use the atonement and apply it to their life through the process of repentance and do what the LDS church demands they do will get to be exalted with the Father. Founder Joseph Smith summarized this really well. It's really simple. He said, we believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinance, ordinances of the gospel. What do you think? Where are you at? Do you accept Calvin's idea? Do you accept the Arminius idea that you know it's, it's been done, you gotta receive it, but once you've got it, you've gotta earn, keep it and maintain it and, and keep it alive and work for it? Do you embrace Joseph Smith's view that says Jesus saved the whole world and through his suffering and death and resurrection, you'll get a body, you're also gonna get a kingdom. You might be in the lowest, you might be in the middle, you might be in the highest, but you're gonna get a kingdom. And if you join the LDS church and do everything they say, you could be in one of the top three of the celestial kingdom. Do you believe that? Or or, or is there a biblically-based option that maybe you have not considered that trumps every one of these? Blows the doors off them in context with Scripture. One that says God is love, that he is just, that he endorses human free will, he implements afterlife purging and punishment to achieve his purposes. Think about it, and to help you think about it, Let's end with a poem, and then we'll go to the phones. This was written in 1843. Ready? And oh, there lives within my heart a hope long, long nursed by me. And should its cheering ray depart, how dark my soul would be. 
that as in Adam all have died, in Christ shall all men live, and ever round his throne abide eternal praise to give, that even the wicked shall at last be fitted for the skies, and when their dreadful doom is passed, to life and light arise. I ask not how remote the day, nor what the sinner's woe, before their dross is purged away, enough for me to know that when the cup of wrath is drained, the metal purified, they'll cling to what they once disdained and live by him that died. That was Annie Bronte, 1843. Let's open up the phone lines, 801. 590-8413. Thank you, Derek Webby. While our black ops are clearing your calls, let's take a look at a commercial and a spot. For Christ is the end of the law. We have uh, emails. We had a caller from Washington hung up. Sean, call us back. The phones are open again. Uh, we have a guy who comes to campus, uh, LDS, and he decided uh, that he was going to send messages from the Bible and literal quotes from LDS church history to his neighbors. He sent out two of them. His name is Danny, and, um, and he planned on sending more, and he received a letter from the stake president stating that he has been executed Executed. <laughs> Same thing. Uh, excommunicated for uh, uh, teaching false doctrine. It's really amazing because Danny, he was very careful to only teach what the Bible says and only teach, if he gave a quote from LDS uh, doctrine, it was straight from their own history and leaders. There was nothing false at all about what he uh, taught, and yet they excommunicated him for teaching false doctrine. And he says, as you know, I've only taught what the Bible uh, says is truthful from the word of God. If they consider this false doctrine, then I am convinced they do not have the true gospel. Uh, the letter stated that I no longer have the companionship of the Holy Ghost with me. It's been taken from me. 
And what they don't realize is the increased love and peace I have in the word of God. I've been filled with this Holy Spirit for many months since accepting Christ as my Lord and Savior. Uh, and he goes on and talks about how if they're going to excommunicate him for teaching just truth and calling it heresy then, uh, and false doctrine, he's glad he's gone. Um, uh, I'll read these in a second. You know, talking about John Calvin and Joseph Smith, we've also talked a lot about the spirit uh, on the show, we've talked about the spirit that exists in the state, the zeitgeist, if you would, the spirit of the age that carries on here that Joseph Smith established. If you go to Colorado City, if you go to some of the, uh, the Kingston's clans and all these other places, you'll see Joseph Smith's spirit alive and well in these people who love him, follow him, believe in him, and pursue him in the way that he taught you have to pursue him. And, and so, and with that we see Utah as the fraud capital uh, of, uh, of uh, the nation. We see uh, various polygamous groups who love him. We see a focus on money and land acquisition by the LDS church, and Joseph was all about those two things. We see forgeries, and we see Mark Hoffman and the Salamander Letter, which was a big forgery, as what, just no more of a forgery, though, than the Book of Abraham that Joseph produced. And we even had the sad kidnapping of Elizabeth Smart, by a guy who was a temple-working uh, Mormon who took her and, and made her his wife when she was 14 or 15 years of age. So we have the zeitgeist of Smith, and all people who are critical of Mormonism agree. Yeah, he's, he, he's from that seed. The tree has grown, and the apples that fall from it are the same thing. It's right built into their DNA. Well, I have a question for you. Is the same spirit that was in Calvin, in Five Point Calvinists? Ask yourself that. In fact, call and tell us if, 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 if you think so or not. Is it? I don't see why it wouldn't be. And what was Calvin like? Next week, we're going to reveal some things about that man's person who introduced this pernicious doctrine into the world. From Randy Sean, what is happening to the church? And he doesn't mean Mormonism. He means the body of Christ. Uh, Randy, I think it's really quite simple. We've talked about it before. Uh, uh, we can see... Uh, that the church has been subject to a cycle that it cannot break out of, it seems. And it, it looks like this. First of all, I'm not gonna touch culture. I've gotten in trouble for that, and that's the Lord's uh, deal. But it works like this. The pastor has a vision. It's usually a big vision. And grand. And he has what he wants. And being a pastor, uh, we have visions of what we want for the church that we're overseeing. And typically... The, the vision is grand. It means it's big. It means it takes a lot to get it going. And then grand visions take lots of money because you got to have money to put the grand vision into place. And lots of money means needing a lot of people. You got to have a lot of people in order to get a lot of money in order to pay for the grand vision. And lots of people means making lots of people happy. And so we have pastors who wanting to achieve their grand vision are trying to make lots and lots of people happy. And in order to make lots of people happy, you have to get rid of the extremes. You have to get rid of, chop off the ends of the roast, so to speak, so that you only have the end because it's like elevator music for Christianity. You can't give them the hardcore stuff. You can't give them the soft. You got to give them the middle ground. And so what happens is they start stop preaching the word because the word doesn't make masses happy. It's too boring. And so what they do is they start bringing in entertainment and shows, and it becomes non-church. Lots of activities, lots of cool stuff, and it becomes non-church. And then what happens from there is the people suffer. And then when the people start suffering, and they do suffer spiritually without hearing the word. It's not the funnest thing to do sometimes. Sometimes it's just tedious to hear it. But bottom line, that's how we grow. And if you're not hearing it, then you start to suffer spiritually. And when you start to suffer spiritually, the church looks like it does today. So there's the cycle. And we entered that back when churches, in my opinion, when the, uh, when the government said, listen, in order to be tax exempt, uh, uh, you can be tax exempt, but you can't speak against the government and so the church has said, okay, you can silence us. Let's bring the money in. And we have a full focus on money and acquisitions of material and land. And, uh, you know, if you're really brave, someday campus may do this. You know, say, hey, you don't get a write-off. You know, you, you donate to the church. There's no write-off here. 
So that would be really a better way to do it because then you can say what you want and you don't have to fear uh, repercussions from it. <sighs> Sean in Tacoma, Washington, on line one. Sean, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing good, man. I just, uh, I need some advice. I really want to call and I, I was the, uh, I grew up a member in the LDS church and uh, I was about 18, 19 and uh I started going to a few years ago to a Christian church over here, and uh, I love it. I absolutely love it. You know, I was able to find Christ that way, and uh, my life has dramatically changed. But uh, I still got a lot of family that is LDS, and uh, I need some advice on how to how to deal with that, and uh, some friends that are missionaries and that are trying to get me to to come back. Come back. Way. Are you married? I am married. Is your wife LDS? No, she's not. Oh, that's good. And how about your kids? No, I like I said, we didn't start going to church until after I was already married. Okay. And had kids, and that's when I started going to this local church over here. And how close are the LDS members of your family to you geographically? Uh, well, I'm in Washington. They're they're in Utah and back east. Okay. Well, I, mean, I would talk to them all the time. And oh, you do? Yeah. Well, you know, I have discovered. For the most part, there's exceptions to this because some people have a lot of influence in their family. There's Greer down in down in uh, southern Utah, not down in, in Utah County. Greer came out and he led his family out and they followed him. There's other people who have come out and their families have followed them. But oftentimes, the relationships aren't good in families and you're not going to be the one to lead them out. So uh, it's going to take somebody else. So the uh, object, Sean, is going to be prayer and trust in the Lord that he will provide somebody Unless they bring it up to you, I wouldn't spend your time with your family talking about it because uh, unless you feel inclined and led. Now, the missionaries and stuff or people who are trying to bring you back in, I would use that as open game, like open season. Load your shotgun yeah. full of information and blast away because, uh, you know, most of them don't know what you know. And so why right. not? Does that help at all? It does. I had one other question. I was actually dealing with uh, the missionaries a little bit today, and, and I kind of took some advice I saw on some, some previous shows about, uh, you know, talking about how, how to be saved and stuff like that, and I kind of stumped them a little bit, and uh, they started talking about baptism, and uh, they were saying that the LDS Church is the only members that are able to baptize, and that one I wasn't really sure how to answer. I mean, I know what my heart tells me, but... Um, um, the best thing that? to do is to turn to Hebrews chapter seven, eight, and uh, seven and eight. Read that really well, Sean, and get to understand what it's saying. And then, when the missionaries come back and say that, you can say, "Look, at priesthood authority that you claim to have has nothing to do with the priesthood authority that the Levites had, and it has nothing to do with Melchizedek, uh, which was who was simply a type of Christ. Your priesthood is a lie." You have no authority. The LDS Church has no authority. And you can say, well, where did, he, where did you get that authority? And they can say, well, I got it from my bishop, and he got it from all the way back to who? To Joseph Smith. Where did Joseph get that authority? He got it from um, John the Baptist, who appeared to him, and then Peter, James, and John, who appeared to him later. You really believe that, Elder? Yes, I do. Well, let's get Grant Palmer's book, and let's read it. He's an LDS member, Insider's View of Mormon Origins. And let's see about the chronology of these events that Joseph supposedly had this priesthood restored to him. And they don't hold water. It's a fiction. It's been made up retroactively to make Joseph's body of theology seamless. But in actuality, there is no priesthood in the first place. And in the second place, Joseph's claims to it are erroneous. Does that help? It absolutely helps. I thank you so much. All right, Sean, thanks for watching. Hey, have a good day. Okay, you too. Bye. We're going to Robert in Seattle. A lot of Washington viewers tonight. Robert, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Good. Thank you. Hey, so my question um, is, uh, what is it that you think that Mormons teach that we need to do to enter the celestial kingdom. What do I think that Mormons teach that you need to do to enter into the celestial kingdom? The lowest degree of the celestial kingdom? Yes. Be baptized. Repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
You have to be baptized by an LDS false priesthood holder, and you have to receive the Holy Ghost by an LDS false priesthood holder. That is what you need to do to enter into the celestial kingdom. Okay. So why is that such a bad thing? Well, one, the priesthood thing is a lie. It's an addition to the good news, which is that uh, Christ came and lived and died and rose again. That's not, uh, baptism is not part of the good news. The receiving of the Holy Ghost comes by the wind of the Holy Ghost's will, not the laying on of hands by authority of a false priesthood. But more importantly, and more to the point of what you're asking is, aren't we teaching faith and repentance and receiving the Holy Ghost? Those are essentials to enter the celestial kingdom. Well, you could say you are, but you're not into the highest degree, the Swedenborgian highest degree of the celestial kingdom, and that is what every LDS person wants. And you would, if you're LDS, you know that. And so the highest degree is what we're talking about. Christians believe it's by faith in Christ you get to the highest degree of heaven to live with God the Father. Mormons say, however, uh, you gotta follow the litany. And we are talking a litany to live with God the Father after this life. So there's the distinguished differences. Well, when I look at it, though, I don't understand the difference between uh, the highest degree of heaven that the evangel or that uh, other Christians believe compared to the lowest degree of what Mormons believe. There's there there, there there's there's not a difference. There's not a difference. But there is a difference here, and, and the difference is Mormons don't teach, strive to enter into the lowest degree of the celestial kingdom. The doctrine, everything about it, the culture, is all focused on perfecting men to reach the highest. So it's a non sequitur to bring in this idea that, hey, it's, we're all the same. We're all kind of striving just to enter in, that you know good and well, Robert, that is not true. Well, exactly, but that's, that's my whole point, is that if we're striving to enter to uh, attain the highest level, we've already done what's required to enter the lowest level. No, so, you haven't, no. because here's the point. You have embraced a false soteriology. You say that baptism, by the laying on of hands of someone with a false priesthood, is necessary, and you also say that receiving the Holy Ghost by someone with that same false priesthood is necessary. That is a false gospel. So we are not on the same uh, playing field here, Robert. Not at all. It was a good try. I know what you're trying to do, but it doesn't work. I, I appreciate that. So I have one other question for you then. Yeah. Now, so all of the early fathers taught after the apostles died of the salvific effect and the necessity of baptism. Every single one of them did. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were pretty explicit. Tertullian taught that uh, no one can obtain salvation without baptism. Yeah. Um, Augustine taught baptism is one thing, conversion of the heart is another, and the man's salvation is made complete with the two together. Hairball. Um, what? <laughs> it's a hairball in my throat. Augustine? No, it's, Look it's at not. the Bible. What Rome does the Bible teach, Robert? And born again hey, of water. It took nothing. It took nothing before those uh, 12 apostles were dead for the gospel to go south. It, didn't, it wasn't completely lost like Joseph taught, but those early church fathers were full of shiitake mushrooms, dude. They said everything under the sun. So because they were beguiled doesn't mean that the Bible's wrong. If you read the Bible, you will see in the Greek that people are baptized because they have been saved. Because as a result of being saved, Robert, not in order to be. And so whatever the early church fathers say is irrelevant to what the Word of God says. Well, they were a whole lot closer to the, uh, so? the apostles and the so? early, you know, and the churches that were... What do you want me to say? Doctrine that are, there teach the are there teachings included in this book, Robert? No, they're not. There's a reason for that. No, they, they are, absolutely. It's just that... No, they're, they're not, not Robert. The verses that they are. When, when we talk about in, in Titus okay, Robert, 5 and the, Robert, the washing of regeneration... Robert, you want to believe that baptism is necessary for salvation? Have at it, buddy. Where was the font for the thief on the cross? Uh, now, hang on, because when, when we actually talk about baptism... Um, let, let's go back just real quick, because we know where we believe that uh, the babies and little children don't need baptism. Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay, we also know that uh, 
those with certain mental disorders aren't responsible for their sins, and that's right. Dave will be in the celestial kingdom. That's correct? me. That's me. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way sometimes myself. Um, so baptism not is not even actually required, but what's required is to be clean because you know just throw this out. But the Book of Mormon tells us that. No unclean thing can dwell with God, or no unclean thing can enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the, the only requirement, really, is not even to, to be baptized, but just to be clean. How are you clean? So, what? How are we clean? We're clean through baptism. Oh, but well, there we're going to disagree, we my friend. Shed blood of Jesus Christ, only the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You want to bring water into this? Have fun. Listen, you called before, haven't you? I, I like I you, Robert. Week, I yeah. like you, but you can call again. But we've got people from New York, Idaho, and Tooele. We got to get to them. Love you, man. Bye. Okay, we're going to Michael in New York on line one. Michael, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Michael, you're on the air. What's your question or comment? Quickly. <laughs> Talk about pressure, huh? Pressure, man. Performance anxiety. Go. You know, no, I just wanted to uh, answer uh, and refute Robert. Okay. Because it, it, I mean, yeah, he is a nice guy. You said he's a nice guy. He seems like a nice guy. But it's not about being a nice guy, Robert. It's about admitting you're not a nice guy, like you say all the time. And it's about your sin. Amen. It's about repentance. And it's about making amends in Christ, being sorry in Christ, doing good works in Christ. And once you know that, it's supernatural. You can't know it through your mind. You can only know it through your heart. And uh, that's all I wanted to say. Hey, Michael, really appreciate you watching out there in New York. Are you near the city? I'm not near the city. Well, I'm close, like about an hour north. <laughs> you know, they all got the accents here. They're all coming up here now because it's cheaper to live up here. We love it. We love it. Thanks, Michael. God bless you. All right, bye. Take care. Bye-bye. We're going to Jason in Eagle, Idaho. Uh, on line three. Jason, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How Hi. are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Hey, I just wanted to call. I've been watching all your shows online for a while, and I just wanted to call and tell you how um, I feel like we're uh, like a distant relative. Uh, we may I, be if you knew uh, my dad. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I think, you know, you, you said that, that you're, a, you're a jackass, and, and, and I agree that I am as well. Uh, I was raised in the Mormon church as well. And uh, Christ changed my heart. Uh, several years ago, I was born again. And uh, I just wanted to um, just praise you for your show. Praise the Lord for your show, because it, it, it's truly good. The Mormon people need this. And um, uh, I, I'm just, uh, everything you're saying, man, with the 501c3, that is a, I mean, that is such a huge muzzle. And I, I appreciate what you said. Just know that I don't have a big presence online. I refuse to. And... Just know that I follow the things that you do. Um, I, I, I'm up here in Idaho. I'd love to come and meet you sometime. If I'm ever in the area, I'd love to come to your show. Uh, me and my wife love watching your show. It's just awesome, and you're doing God's work. Thanks, Jason. To do. Where's Eagle, Idaho? It's just a, it's just a, a, a suburb of Boise. Okay. It's about Boise, yeah. We get up there every now and then. We'll, when we do, we'll have to get together. Oh, dude, I'd love it. God bless you, man. Love hey. your show. Love it, love it. Thanks for watching, Jason. Okay, okay, have a good night, Sean. You too, bye-bye. We're going to Mike in Idaho Falls. Mike, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Mike? Sean, can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, hey, uh, we're not on Falls here. We were just wondering why there's so many missionaries up here. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, Idaho, uh, it's, I think it's, uh, it's Utah, Washington, California, Idaho, in terms of LDS, um, number of LDS per capita. So maybe it's that, my friend. Are you, uh, you former Mormon or Christian? Well, they're all over the place up there. <laughs> they are? Well, start yeah. talking to them. Okay. Any, any other comment? No, I was wondering when it seems like we're being attacked. <laughs> Attack of the Mormon missionaries. Well, they've got so many of them now. I mean, they've got a crew out there. So uh, go out there and start, you know, you see them in the public places. Start talking with them. Ask them questions. It'll be fun, and you'll learn more and more as you do that, Mike. Okay. 
Okay, take it easy. Okay, thanks. Okay, bye. So, so affable, so amiable to get along. All right, I'll do it. Hey, listen, Sean, what are your top five greatest issues with Mormonism? Number one, they preach another gospel. You might think, well, that should be number, I mean, number five, they preach another gospel. You might think that should be number one. But the problem is, so many churches preach another gospel. They preach works, they preach... Uh, all this other stuff. So it's my number five choice. Number four, uh, additional scripture that counters the Bible. It, it, even the Book of Mormon, which is very biblically based, there are things in the Book of Mormon that are opposite of what the Bible says. For instance, it says, you are saved by grace after all that you can do. Uh, that is certainly not a biblical uh, uh, concept. Temple rites for exaltation, number three, since we're working backward. Number two, unbiblical priesthood claims and ordinances, unbiblical priesthood claims and ordinances. My number one complaint is their ontology of God, saying that God the Father uh, is a male, he's an exalted man, he has a penis, he has testes, uh, he has to shave or he doesn't shave, I don't know. Uh, Jesus says God is a spirit, you worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus says that, Mormonism says different. That is a huge difference and it alters everything else. If you can believe that, then what it does is it places you in the position of becoming you know, a God because you have uh, to shave and you have to all these other parts too. And so it really is uh, troubling and those are my deals. Uh, Heather in Tooele, Heather on line four. Heather, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello, Sean, I called earlier and asked you the question about the medium. Yes. I just want to know what your thoughts were on mediums, um, speaking with the dead, and um, your thoughts on people that have the near-death experiences. And then I also had another question that I didn't ask you earlier um, that I read somewhere, and it's totally crazy. Um, I want to know if you've ever heard of, now I can't think of the name of it, it's where we come out of our bodies. Um, Astral projection? No, when, when people that. are getting close to their death, um, and they come, like, it's some kind of a cord and they're connected by the belly button and they come out and like spirits, like get them ready for death. And I can't think of the name of that. Maybe I will while you're talking. <laughs> yeah, I've heard of that. I don't know much about the umbilical cord one. I've heard of it though. Astral projection, Angus yes, Young. Astro, astro, yeah, something like that. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't know, it's, it's really popular in the occult and stuff. I was gonna say Angus Young of ACDC says he sits up in the rafters and watches himself play. Uh, I, I don't know what that's about. Uh, you know, and like we talked about earlier, Heather, I'm really, um, I'm really reticent to make a stance on stuff because I've told people before on the show, when I was a little, little kid, I saw a lady who was killed in the house my parents bought. I saw her as clear as day. And Christians have always told me it was the devil dressed as the woman. And, and, and they say, you can't see. And maybe there's something to that. I, my problem is I just don't know. And so I don't make stances on it either way. Maybe I did see the devil or maybe I saw a ghost. Who knows? But I have sympathy for people who have visions and dreams and see things because it's so influential. However, mediums, soothsayers, astrologers, fortune tellers are all forbidden in the Bible because they're tapping into a false source and they're uh, probably a dark force. And uh, so I, I think those are biblically uh, inclined, but visions and dreams and all that are part of the Bible. And we do have a story of Samuel, I think it's Samuel, someone correct me, coming back from the dead. People say, no, it wasn't. It says it was. I, you know, I don't know what to do with that stuff. So I hope that helps. Astral okay. projection, don't do it. To me, that means no, you're dead. But I just remember, it's called astral traveling, and they say that these spirits come to you while you're, um, like when you're getting ready to die, and they, they pull your spirit, your spirit out, and your, your spirit stays connected to your body, and they prepare your spirit for death, if Man. that makes sense, of, of your spirit actually leaving your body. So it's not like, and like, we don't remember it as <laughs> humans. Right. That, it's all uh, it's all stuff to, to get us believing and hoping that something's after this, isn't it? Hey, Heather, really appreciate you watching. Thanks for uh, checking it out. Thank you. Thanks okay. for all your information. Great show. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Join us next week as we continue on. We're going to cover the uh, eye of the tulip. That would be irresistible grace. That means when God points at you, you cannot resist. 
it happens. His will is done. We'll talk about that, plus a lot of other good things. We've got a lot of good emails. Listen, check us out by going to www.hotm.tv. You can see all the archive shows. Also, you can go to www.campus with hyphens in between the letters.com and you can watch our verse by verse teachings through John, Matthew, Romans, and Hebrews. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.